the history of the Academy Awards, there have been upsets, there have been controversial wins, and there have even been wins that, when reflected on, say, 10 years down the line, are total head-scratchers. And then there is the 14th Academy Awards. In 1942, when John Ford's How Green Was My Valley walked away with a top prize, it didn't seem like that big of an upset. But as the years went by and cinema caught up to the film that was snubbed that year, one glaring question became clear. How did Citizen Kane not win Best Picture? Now, there are various reasons Citizen Kane didn't connect with the Academy voters, but this early ceremony highlights the complaints that still ring out after a controversial Best Picture win. The Academy's preference for established filmmakers over newcomers, and its value on the familiar over the innovative long after the innovative has actually become the norm. So, while Best Picture winner How Green Is My Valley is now largely only remembered as the film that beat Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane has had to make do with consistently being named the greatest film of all time, inspiring hundreds of films that became classics and even Best Picture winners, and providing comfort and good company for every Best Picture loser that followed it. The chorus of the squeaky horns was music to my ears. The last time I saw Paris... Hello, and welcome to For Your Reconsideration. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And we re-examine best picture races and determine if the Academy got it right. Yes, we do. And this week on our season finale... We are discussing the 1942 Oscars, the 14th Academy Awards that honored the best films of 1941. So how about a little refresher about what was going on in 1941? Please. Okay. Well, FDR was the president. Fun times. On January 13th, a law was passed that made all people born in Puerto Rico U.S. citizens. Congratulations to them. On May 21st, the first U.S. ship was sunk by a German U-boat. I shouldn't have led into that in such an upbeat manner because it wasn't great. <laughs> Dude, there's, there's a DoorDash guy here. It looks like he kick all of our asses. How should... fun for our podcast <laughs> listeners to know that. <laughs> He's scary looking. I'm not going to lie. He looks like he would have pulled up here on like a Harley. Mm. Instead, what's he driving? Some kind of SUV. Yeah. Something that Kia, can hold all the things he's dashing. Yeah, okay. So anyway. Um, U-boats. U-boats. And also in December, Wonder Woman comic began publication. Wonder Woman was introduced to the masses. Ooh, another downer here. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I read ahead this time. On December 7th, 1941... <laughs> Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. Uh, how would you describe that day? I believe it lives on in infamy. <laughs> well said, well said. Yeah, because on December 8th, FDR gave his famous speech where he said that. And within the hour, the U.S. declared war on Japan. And then on December 11th, Germany and Italy declared war on the U.S. And then we declared war on them. And next thing you know, it was World War II all up in here. Wow. Escalated quickly. Oh, well, it's what happens when you bomb someone who you're not at war with. Things escalate pretty quickly. Thank you, Devin, for explaining the joke. You want to know about the year in film? Yeah. Okay, slightly less sad. 
On January 17th, Gone with the Wind went into general release after touring in a roadshow version ni- during 1940. Now, hmm. this film came out in 1939. Yeah. I just want you to remember that. Um, it sold an estimated 60 million tickets in 1941 alone. Wow. Two years after it had come out. 60 million, like, tickets, not 60 million in, like, revenue. No, 60 million individual tickets were sold in 1941, two years after the film had come out. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so as a lot of people, it's adjusted for inflation, It's and with numerous re-releases, it remains the highest-grossing domestic film of all time with $1.8 billion. Why do you say domestic? Is there a foreign film that's sold more? Um, I no, I probably not. Who knows? There's no way to know that because it's not written here on this paper for me. I'm just saying, what foreign film <laughs> sold more than Gone with the Wind? When it came in here to the U.S. and sold more. Mm, hard to say. Yeah, very hard. Rashomon? <laughs> um, on October 23rd, 1941, Dumbo was released, becoming Disney's only big hit of the 1940s and one of the most acclaimed animated films ever made. Uh, that was the end of that. You know, I know you get these facts from other places, but you don't have to, like, read them how they wrote them. Like, you don't have to say it became the greatest anime movie. That's, that's someone's opinion, not yours, obviously. I don't know if I've ever seen Dumbo, honestly. You don't think you just say Dumbo came out? Well, it was the biggest hit of Disney in the 1940s. Boom. I that's feel a, like it wasn't a great a, decade for Disney. But that's a fact. To say it's, like, one of their best works is not a fact. Okay, well, here's some facts. You want to know the top 10 movies of 1941? Yes. Number 10, Charlie's Aunt. Number nine, Best Picture winner. I just want you to, like, I want you to know that, like, you know, you make a lot of jokes that, like, like I just said about the DoorDash guy. But then you do these, like, pauses that are only meant for your face. (laughs) I'm waiting to see if you're going to say anything. Oh, got you. Okay. You just never do. But you made, like, you make, like, good reactions. Like, I wish people could see you. (laughs) Is a thing. Like I you know what I mean? That's why I thought yeah. you were doing it for that. Number oh. nine. <laughs> best picture winner, How Green Was My Valley. Number eight, Life Begins for Andy Hardy. I wonder oh. if that was the first Andy Hardy movie. That's probably the prequel. Oh, probably. Number seven, they met in Bombay. Sounds sexy. Probably wasn't. That's one of those Bob Hope <laughs> traveling movies. It or probably was. <laughs> Uh, number six, Louisiana Purchase. Sounds boring. Oh, yeah, <laughs> number five, Zigfield Girl. Mm. We're getting into the fun stuff now in the top five. Number four, Babes on Broadway. Huh. Number three, Honky Tonk. <laughs> Just sorry, Babe the Pig is on Broadway. Babes <laughs> on Broadway. <laughs> number Honky two. Okay. Number two, They Died with Their Boots On. Mm, sounds depressing. It doesn't sound great. Yeah. And number one, Sergeant York. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You want to know a little bit about the 14th Academy Awards ceremony? I know you do. Okay. See, so, I like that. You weren't even waiting for the answer. <laughs> this ceremony introduced the best documentary category. And the first documentary to win an Oscar was Churchill's Island, which was a propaganda film. The Little Foxes established a new high of nine nominations without winning a single Oscar. Damn. Its mark was matched by Peyton Place in 1957 and exceeded by The Turning Point in The Color Purple, both of which received 11 nominations without a single win. Really? Yeah, that's rough, that's isn't it? interesting, yeah. It's like back in our H&N days, you know? I don't know what that means. When I was nominated, I had the most nominations. 
Yeah, and you didn't win any. Didn't win any. I went two. I know. I'm so winning. it's not our H and N days. It's not like <laughs> your H and N days. Wow, dude. H and N was a high school news program that Kyle and I worked on. And I'm in still high very school. pissed off about it. Okay. We know. Everyone can tell. Yeah. It's okay. <clears throat> so, on to the movies now. In the 40s and in, in this ceremony, there were 10 films that were nominated for Best Picture. Now, unfortunately, because some films are not easy to find and also uh, we are lazy, we did not watch <laughs> all 10 of those films. But we probably chose the five you'd heard of. Yes. So we're going to talk about five of the films, but I just want to run through uh, the other ones just in the, in the, what's the word I'm looking for? In the spirit of inclusion. Of all these films that earned a Best Picture nomination. So, we got One Foot in Heaven, directed by Irving Rapper, produced by Warner Brothers. Uh, One Foot in Heaven is an American biographical film starring Frederick March. It was adapted by Casey Robinson from the autobiography of Hartzell Spenk, who was a preacher. And it talked about his, it was a movie about his calling to be a preacher. So that's that. Next, uh, <laughs> The Little Foxes by William Wyler, uh, produced by Samuel Goldwyn Productions and RKO. Uh, the Little Foxes is an American drama film directed by William Wyler, and the screenplay by Lillian Hellman is based on her 1939 play of the same name. Hellman's ex-husband, Arthur Cober, Dorothy, Dorothy Parker, and her husband, Alan Campbell, contributed additional scenes and dialogue. Uh, the plot concerns a Southern aristocrat, Regina Hubbard, played by Betty Davis, who struggles for wealth and freedom within the confines of the early 20th century society where a father considered only sons as legal heirs. Dude, this sounds awesome. It sounds very on brand we, for Betty Davis. This is one. It sounds great. We couldn't find. Yeah. Like, it does not exist online. The library did not have it. Like, I wonder if it's like because it was... Luck. You know, it's, it wasn't like a major studio that produced. Like it was Samuel Goldwyn on his own. Like us before. Well, it was no, probably the fact that it didn't win any Oscars. They probably just burned all the canisters. I mean, sh- maybe. I'm gonna go with that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, a lot. Of there, there's probably some really good stories how we lose a lot of these films. Unfortunately. I actually, uh, I mean, like it doesn't even have to be films that aren't considered great because all the original film of Citizen Kane is also burned. So. Is it really? Yeah. Is that true. Mm-hmm. Wow, well, I'm sure we'll get there. I actually didn't include it in my interesting facts. So huh. I'm telling you about it now. It goes to show how interesting your facts are. <laughs> Dude, there was so much information about Citizen Kane, I really had to sure. pare that down. Okay. Hold Back the Dawn, directed by Mitchell Lyson, um, produced by Paramount. Hold Back the Dawn um, is a romantic drama film in which a Romanian gigolo marries an American woman in Mexico in order to gain entry to the United States, but winds up falling in love with her. Stars Charles Boyer and Olivia de Havilland. Not gonna lie, also sounds good. Sounds a little crazy. I don't understand how in the code era we could have a gigolo, but maybe that word doesn't mean what I think it means. Maybe not. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But it was adapted by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. Cool. Yeah, it was nominated. A great writer. Like I said, it was nominated for like nine awards and didn't. Or was that one? No, it wasn't. But it was nominated for. <laughs> Best picture, best actress, best writing, art direction, black and white, cinematography, black and white, scoring. Uh, Hold Back the Dawn? Mm-hmm. Also unobtainable. 
Yeah. Really, the only one we didn't watch because, well, we'll get there, but Blossoms in the Dust and Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Oh, I was just going to talk about Here Comes Mr. Jordan. It was directed by Alexander Hall and produced by Columbia. Um, It is an American fantasy, a romantic comedy film in which a boxer mistakenly taken to heaven before his time is given a second chance back on earth. Stars Robert Montgomery, Claude Rains, and Evelyn Keyes. The film script is based on Harry Siegel's play Heaven Can Wait. And uh, there were many, many sequels and many, many movies that basically took that same idea. And obviously Warren Beatty remade it in 1978 as Heaven Can Wait. Um, But basically, like all the movies, It's a Wonderful Life, Bishop's Wife, Angels in the Outfield, all take their inspiration from Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Anything with a guardian angel. Yeah, it sounds good, too. Yeah, it does. I haven't even, I've never seen Heaven Can Wait, the yeah. 78 version, which I'd heard of. I hadn't heard of Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Uh, and finally, the last film that we did not watch was uh, Blossoms in the Dust, directed by Mervyn Leroy, produced by MGM. It is a biographical drama film starring Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon. It tells the true story of Edna Gladney, who helped orphaned children find homes and be began a campaign to remove the word illegitimate from Texas birth certificates despite the opposition of good citizens. Good is in quotation marks. They were probably (laughs) racist and awful. Um, The screenplay was by Anita Luce with a story by Ralph Wheelwright. Right. Uh, The film was one of the biggest hits in 1941 for MGM and began the rise of Greer Garson as one of the largest stars of the decade. Um, it won an Oscar for Best Art Direction in Color and was nominated for Best Actress and Best Cinematography Color and Best Picture. Cool. So, yeah, unfortunately, we didn't watch it. We're sorry we failed you as Oscar podcast hosts. But let's talk about the movies we did watch. Let's do it, Devin. First up, Suspicion by Alfred Hitchcock, produced by RKO Radio Pictures. Synopsis. A shy young heiress marries a charming gentleman and soon begins to suspect he's planning to murder her. You know what? I'm going to request in season three, you got to write your own synopsis. I don't want to. Do you? I have seven pages here of things that I've put together in preparation for this podcast. What do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. I'll write the synopsis. That's what you say. I know. You know, <laughs> there's always season three. I find it fun to see how accurate IMDb is. All right, then maybe we can have like a fun little game where I write the real version. Okay. We see who's better. Sure. Okay. I think we said this on season one. Yeah, so. we did. <laughs> okay. So we'll see. This isn't a new idea, I guess. <laughs> no. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Suspicion is based on Francis Isles' novel Before the Fact. From 1932. Uh, Nathaniel West was hired as a screenwriter by RKO, where he collaborated with Boris Ingster on a film adaptation of the novel. When RKO signed Before the Fact to Hitchcock, he already had his own substantially different screenplay credited to Samson Ralphelson, Joan Harrison, and Alma Revel. Uh, Harrison was Hitchcock's personal assistant and Revel was Hitchcock's wife. Weston Inkster's screenplay was abandoned and never produced. A suspicion illustrates how a novel's plot can be so much altered in the transition to film as to reverse the author's original intention. 
Um, as William L. DeAndra states in his Encyclopedia Mysteriosa in 1994, that suspicion was supposed to be the study of a murder as seen through the eyes of the eventual victim. However, because Cary Grant was to be the killer and Joan Fontaine the person killed, the studio decreed a different ending, which Hitchcock supplied and then spent the rest of his life complaining about. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> My kind of guy, dude. Joan Just Fontaine. does what everybody else wants and then complains about it forever. Like, Isn't this awful? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Joan Fontaine is the only person to ever win an acting Oscar for a Hitchcock film. Wow. And also, it was like the big thing of the, of the ceremony, too, because her sister, Olivia de Havilland, was also nominated for Best Actress. And those two sisters hated each other. They had like a super bad rivalry. Like, Why do they have different names? Probably one of them was married. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot that's how One names or both changed. of them was married. I don't know. But like, Damn. But yeah, they hardcore hated each other. And so, and it was like, everyone thought Olivia de Havilland was going to win. And then Joan Fontaine won. Hmm. Facts. All right. I've talked for so much. You tell me what you thought of Suspicion by Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, I wish I wrote everything down too. Um, you know, lesser Hitchcock. I totally, uh, I think it would have actually been a really novel idea to like have it to like to believe that he is going to kill her and is told through the eyes and feel that anxiety. And I, whereas I do think like it's a little bit there, they never allow him to go like full creepy, but it is kind of interesting to see Cary Grant in this role. You're not used to where it's like right now it's, it's funny to watch Yeah. and how uh, outrageously creepy he is. <laughs> but then they always like hone it back in. It's just like fucking pick, like pick a tone, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I could see it being like a better, I mean, cinematic movie if it was, if it was what the novel described, you know what I mean? I feel like mm-hmm. that would have been, this is, this is lesser Hitchcock to me. I was very, I was very unimpressed at the end of the day. Yeah. And the ending just like. The ending's awful because it literally doesn't, it is not what the movie's been leading up to the entire no, time. No, no. And it because, just, it just wraps a bow on it, right? Like, right. it's just, I don't know. It goes from being a story about a man who's going to murder his wife to a story about how, like, a wife is crazy for thinking that her trash husband is going to, like, regardless, even if he didn't marry her, he's an awful husband. Just, like, he's terrible. That out there, but, he like, is terrible. If it's, it's filled with lies how he gets her to marry him. Yeah. And then he has no money and they have to, like, and he gambles all and the time. He gambles their and money then lies away. About it. She, they inherited a f- chair, which I know this is the dumbest thing in the world, but they inherited like a family heirloom chair. Yeah. And he immediately sold it and used that money to go to the races. Like, yes, he won that day and bought her some nice stuff and brought the, bought the chair back. But that is besides the point. That yeah. does not make you a and good person. And he lied to her about selling the chair. He was all like, yeah. He was just trapped. I mean, you're made not to trust this guy the entire film. So then, like, when it ends, it's just like, what are you actually saying? Right. Are you saying that, like, oh, it's okay to be suspicious. You should be suspicious. But, like, don't worry. Everything's fine. Right. All those red flags, don't worry about it. Right. It's, dude, it's so. It's like, what? <laughs> right. This movie is. For me, like, I just oh. don't under When you change the ending like that, it just turns into, like, so what was the point of this movie? Like. Why did we make this then? Right. Because it's not really saying anything. That's not highly problematic. 
Um, no, exactly. It, it's such. It's actually such a problem that, that it, it's it's upsetting. It's <laughs> it's a shame. It does and, not hold up. In and again, when it's because like they change something, it's just it just gets you mad at the whole system. You yeah. know what I mean? This is which. Sorry, go. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's okay. You already started to. I lost my train of thought. <sighs> okay, so. If you like the whole problem was like they're like, oh, we can't have Cary Grant being a murderer, then don't cast Cary Grant. Like, I don't. The thing is, is they probably that. already had all the cast in place before there was even a finished script. I mean, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's how that system all works. It's just plug yeah. and go, you know? I will say it's still directed well. Like, Alfred Hitchcock still, there's still some good stuff in there. I mean, yeah, sure. And I think I and honestly I really did like Cary Grant's performance in this film because I do think it takes like his his on-screen persona of this like super charming person and then like drags it out to this sinister level which I found very compelling and interesting and I would have really liked to have seen him be able to actually like play it through to the you know inevitable ending that it was leading to because I think that he, I mean I don't know. I I liked his performance. A lot. I think you're right. It's just I don't think like any of that is actually properly conveyed to the film. Like, yeah, you get hints of him being like sinister or whatever, but then it's always right back to like Mr. Charming. So it's never like, sure, you just want to see more of that, but it never even like lets you go the other way. But that's what. So I think that is what makes it even more sinister, though, is that he like is also charming, and also like his charm relies heavily on the fact that he his face is Cary Grant, but like. <laughs> Because a lot of what he does is just really creepy and weird. Uh, but also, in the 1940s, courting was weird. Like, people did weird things in all movies where they're not supposed to be murderers. So, yeah. I can't put all that on that. Oh, let's go for a walk. I love you. Right. And then, it's, wasn't he, like, taking her jacket? Insane. I don't know what he was doing. Wasn't he trying to, like, undress her when they went on that yeah, walk? Yeah, it got something? super rapey, dude. It was so weird. It got super rapey. But I don't think that was one of the intended creepy parts. You know what I mean? No. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I don't know what I was saying. I don't his think charm it is mostly that helped well, but... by his face. Sure. But I think that that is. Well, that's. I mean, like, that's how people. A lot of people who get. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I'm just saying that, like. But my problem is, is like it could have been like the charming with it with like a creepy essence. Unfortunately to me, it was like a 180 flip each time. Oh, see, I thought even when he was being charming, he was being creepy. Oh, okay. It was like in a creepy way because it was always like to gain something. Like I never oh, thought sure. he actually cared about her at all. No. He cared about her money. Right. I Again, mean, it, it like, it, I, think, I think it tried to walk that initial line of what the book was doing, but just dropped the ball. Yeah. As far as like a really compelling story. Yeah, it's one of those things too, again, where if this hadn't been made in a during the Hayes Code, it probably would be a much better film, but yeah, yeah. the Hays Code, you know. When does the Hays Code end? Um, I don't think it, it was like officially revoked in maybe like the 60s. Yeah, like the early 60s? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they definitely started pushing the envelope a little bit more. Although there are other movies that we nominated this year that I think pushed the Hays Code to an extent that it's like, I mean, I, wow. I mean, yeah, like. And they did it cleverly where I think they, the, the argument, people couldn't properly put into words what they needed to get rid of because they didn't want to say it or like. Yeah. And I mean, and different studios and different directors were better at, yeah. you know, they'd put a bunch of highly problematic things in there. So it would distract them and they'd be like, well, you have to take all this out. And they'd be like, oh, and sure. And then it. you don't notice that. Yeah. I feel like that's still used today, even with the MPAA. 
Yeah. Um, started on the MPAA. No, but even like a little thing, like for an example, uh, even a little thing like the kissing in this movie, like Hitchcock oh, would yeah. rotate around the actors. So then that kiss was a cool scene. Yeah. So then the kiss was, it looked long to the audience, but they actually weren't technically shown kissing for the allotted time. Right. Yeah. Cause in the Hays code, there was, it was a certain amount of time that you could show people kissing, which is insanity, but yeah. What are you going to do? All right. You want to know what other people thought of Suspicion? Of course. All right. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 78% and a critic score of 97%. Um, As far as its legacy, it has not been named to any really notable lists, but the American Film Institute on their list of the greatest stars, Cary Grant, is listed at number two. Um, For its Oscar record, it had three nominations and one win for Best Actress. And at the box office, it made... $1.8 $1.8 million in 1942 and $4.5 million total. Nice. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, I am forgot to bust out my inflation calculator. Oh, you have an inflation calculator? Well, I used it last time, didn't I? I, don't I used it at some point. Um, so why don't you talk while I figure out this inflation going on? You said $4.5 million? Total, yeah. Okay. But I don't know when that... I don't know when the re-release was, so how do we know what the inflation is supposed to be? Well, what did it make that year? It made $1.8 million in 1942. Okay, I'm just going to put that. Keep talking, Devin. This is boring. Well, I'm going to talk about the next movie, so this doesn't... We should we should wrap up. Yeah, you can talk about the next movie while I do this calculation. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. You want to keep it all on the... All right. Um, it, that's equivalent to about $31 million. Okay. It's a little over $31 million. So that's a decent... That's not even like... Is that good nowadays? I don't know. No? Wait, is this... I don't know. I mean, no. Nowadays, that's like... That's not good. No, it's not good at all. Okay. So Suspicion, a big old flop, no matter what year it came out. Okay. Next up is Sergeant York. Directed by Howard Hawks and produced by Warner Brothers. Synopsis. A marksman is drafted in World War I and ends up becoming one of the most celebrated war heroes. It's a bit of a spoiler, not going to lie, because that definitely uh, ignores the central conflict of the film and then also tells you how that conflict is resolved. So, not great, IMDb. Uh, The film was based on the diary of Sergeant Elvin York, as edited by Tom Scahill, and was adapted by Harry Chanley, Abram Finkel, John Huston, Howard Eacock, and Sam Cowan, who was uncredited. A lot of hands on that. Maybe, uh, sorry, maybe Suspicion came out towards the end of the year, so it was only like a little bit of box office money in like December. That could be. Okay. Um, so Sergeant York benefited from the attack on Pearl Harbor, which occurred while the film played in theaters. The film's patriotic theme helped recruit soldiers. Young men sometimes went directly from the movie theater to military enlistment offices. After its initial release, the film was frequently reshown at theaters all over America during the war as a quick replacement for box office flops and as a theme program for bond sales and scrap drives. So like I said before, it was the highest grossing film of 1941 and basically that's largely because of 
Yeah. Um, so I'll start since you're still calculating inflation. I will talk about Sergeant York. Um, you know, I had not heard of this movie. I didn't know anything really about this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. You'd heard of it? Yeah. I had not heard of it. Also, uh, Gary Cooper won for best actor for this. It made about $78 million. Is we're going back Suspicion? to Suspicion made about okay. $78 million, which I feel is pretty fair. Cool. For especially, you know, Hitchcock film in 1941. Anyway, mm-hmm. okay. Thank you for that update. Do you want yeah. me to tell you right now what Sergeant York made so that we can <laughs> have that ready by the time? No, 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 I'm good. Sergeant York, Sergeant York. Okay. Um, anyway, and so, yeah, I didn't know that much about it. And honestly, like, war movies are probably one of my least favorite dramas right before Westerns. So, I don't know if High Hopes Like, you hate war movies more than Westerns? Or no, you, I hate, no, you hate Westerns, Westerns more. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I really, really enjoyed this movie. And maybe it's because I had low expectations, so I was just, you know, pleasantly surprised by it. But I thought it was a very thoughtful examination of the reasons why we go to war and what war means. And... And I mean, also, there's a lot of uh, religion in this movie as well, which is not a thing that I'm personally connected to. But I thought that the way that they connected, you know, in the in the central conflict of the film is that Sergeant York, his religious beliefs bar him from wanting to participate in war. Yeah. And then he kind of reads some other stuff and thinks about his country. I don't know. I guess I don't really know why he changed his mind. It, it was a very quick transition. That actually well, they was... sent him away. But what book was that? It was like the history of the United States or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, he took his time figuring it out. It's just a short part of the movie. But, sure. but um, I just thought it was, I just thought it was a very well done. I think that that kind of thing could be very heavy handed and very like feel kind of propaganda. And I don't know if it's because it's based on his like diary and his, you know, his true feelings and events of his life. But, um, I just thought that it, it was very well done. And Gary Cooper's performance was, was great. And, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'd have to agree. Um, it's funny. Cause you mentioned the religion aspect, which literally doesn't come in until like 45 minutes to an hour <laughs> into this movie. This movie's really weirdly, oddly broken up. I'd say like yeah. the last half hour, 45 minutes is the war stuff. And then his brief, the brief time after the war for him. But it's, yeah, the first whole half of the... Wait, wait. Was this the two and a half hour movie? Yeah. This movie... Yeah. Like, calling it's, it a war movie isn't really accurate. Because yeah, it's, it's not, literally like 20 minutes of war stuff. No. I think it's like... I think more so what's interesting about it is that it it takes someone fighting in, you know, the Great War. Because uh, this is World War One. it's obviously talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes to a part of America where, like, they literally have almost no idea... Of what our country is doing, right? In you know, in the in foreign affairs, um. So it takes that guy who is just living his life, doing the only thing he knows really how to do without like almost any education, and he's just getting drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's just again, he's just doing what he knows, but then he does find God and uh, kind of leads him down this path. He gets drafted, all this jazz, right? Am I spoiling? It? No. Would you look at me like that for? Oh no, I'm sorry. Would you look at me like that for? Okay. Uh, sorry. Um, again, we should have, we should just have a video podcast, I think at this point. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, 
I think that yeah, the fault that's the fact that it takes like the small town again. So not only is he like a Quaker, he's not is he Quaker? No, he's not a Quaker, he's just Christian. He's just Christian, but he doesn't believe in murder. Right. Well, he basically says like the Bible tells me not to kill, so therefore Therefore I will not kill. kill, Right. But like in a lot of ways too, is like I I was kinda like relating it to like now or even like not necessarily that I would bring religion into it, but it's just like now I think the whole debate is who are we killing for? So what are we killing for? And again, this this uh, small town guy that again has no idea what's happening around the world is just supposed to go off and fight for a country that he knows almost nothing about. And so yeah. I think that's what's interesting when you know he reads the book about the United States, uh, and maybe that gets him a little bit more motivated even though if i look at the history of the united states i'm not getting more motivated about anything that's true but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um it is an interesting story i i had heard of the movie before i had never watched it or anything but or even really knew what it was about outside of the fact that it was based on a real person but uh it is told really well it's, it's interesting because when you go in without any idea which i mean is a rarity these days right yeah like <laughs> even a lot of these classes we watch we know something about it because of pop culture or whatever um, or new movies we obviously see trailers. It's almost impossible to avoid, although I, I celebrate those who do. Um, it's hard work. Yeah, it was an interesting watch where I, you didn't really know where it was going to get. But it is surprising when it's like an hour and a half into the movie before the army's even mentioned. Yeah, I'm like looking uh, back at the cover. I'm like, he's definitely in an yeah. army outfit. Right, <laughs> like, but you're in for the ride because the movie's funny. It's heartfelt, wholesome. It mm-hmm. just kind of works on, like, a lot of different levels. Mm-hmm. And it was genuinely moving to me, too. Like, a lot of times, I just feel like because some of these older movies, like, the pacing is so different from what we're used to and that sort of thing. Like, sometimes it doesn't emotionally connect to me as much as more modern movies. But I, I definitely felt emotionally invested in this. Yeah. It was on, it was a, it was a good it was a good watch honestly. Yeah. And I can see how it inspires someone like Mel Gibson to go do that, you know, that one from a couple of years ago. Uh, also said during the Great War. Oh yeah, is that, that's not about the same person though, is it? No, not oh, okay. about the same person. But the the what's it? The conscientious objector. Objector, yeah. What was that movie? Um, I didn't see it. Heart Ridge. Heart Ridge. Heart. It's like Hacksaw Ridge. That's it. Well, that that was the World War One, right? I don't know what war not that was. I'm wondering if it's World War. It might be World War Two. Whatever. I don't support Mel. But it's an interesting concept when you're trying to relate to people, like when you're not trying to like be pro-war. But you can kind of like address both sides of mm-hmm. the coin. You know what I mean? Um, Which again, I think is this might be like one of the last movies that I think did that for a long time because I think after World War II, there wasn't a lot of right. examining both sides of that no. for a while. So, no. and like it's this is certainly not as like anti-war as All Quiet on the Western Front. No. In fact, it's very kind of pro. But I think it brings up some interesting ideas that. Uh, yeah, more and like he's still like those who did fight. Then. Yeah, and he he. Still, like, it's not like he takes a lot of pride in his um, reputation as a war hero. You know what I mean? Like, he was just doing his job and doing, you know what I mean? I don't think he, at the end of the day, was, like, proud of the fact that he killed a bunch of people. No. No, no, no. But he was protecting his men and doing what he had to do. Right. He just wanted to go back to the life he did know. Right. And built his, they they built that house for him. Yeah. That was a pretty wonderful. I know. Hope all that's true, anyway. But yeah, no, I mean, solid movie, and yeah, Gary Cooper does deliver quite a good performance. An Oscar-winning performance. Oh, he did? Some say. Gotcha. Oh, he didn't win? Oh, Oscar? he did win, yeah. The Academy Voters. Why did say some say? Oh, the, the I'm song? sure some people didn't vote for him. But the majority did. 
Sure. <laughs> you want to know what other people thought about it? Yes. So it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 87% and a critic score of 85%. Um, as far as its legacy, the American Film Institute on their list of 100 cheers um, is ranked at number 57. And Alvin York was ranked as the 35th hero of American cinema on the AFI list. And it was preserved in the National Film Registry in 2008. Its Oscar record, it was nominated in nine categories and won two, Best Actor and Best Editing. And at the box office, it made... $16 million, the highest grossing film in 1941. Well, I already have it for you. Adjusted for inflation, that's over $400 million, and it's the 117th highest grossing film of all time. I only have $278 million. I feel like my calculator's off then. Anyway. Either way, it's success, and we're dropping the inflation calculator. Oh, no. Yeah, it's gone. It's officially now, dude. I know. I know you're thinking, finally, and then season three will have it in every episode. Sorry, guys. It's out the window. Done Mm. done already. Can't rely on it, you know? Next up is The Maltese Falcon, directed by John Huston, produced by Warner Brothers. Oh, one thing I forgot. John Huston actually did the screenplay for Sergeant York. Oh, yeah. He did. He broke in as a writer, and this was his first movie, The Maltese Falcon. Big year for John Huston. Yeah, it is. Uh, Many years to come will also be big years for Johnny Houston. Yeah. He had a good career. He did. And a cool daughter. Very cool daughter. The coolest. (laughs) All right. Synopsis. A private detective takes on a case that involves him with three eccentric criminals, a gorgeous liar, and their quest for a priceless statuette. (laughs) That's a good synopsis. That is actually straight to the point. I like it. All right. Fun facts. It was written by John Houston. Based on the Dashiell Hammond novel of the same name. How is that a fun fact? It's a fact. It's a fact. Yes, Devin. Hammond said of his iconic character, quote. Oh, I see you're getting to this fact. Spade has no original. He is a dream man in the sense that he is what most of the private detectives I worked with would like to have been. And in their cockier moments thought they approached. End quote. In Hammett's novel, the character Joel Cairo is clearly homosexual, but to avoid problems with the censors, this was downplayed considerably, <laughs> although he's still noticeably effeminate. Those are all my fun facts for the multi. That's just Peter Lorre for you, though. Is that who that was? Yeah. I don't know that. You didn't... He literally has one of the most interesting looks in Hollywood history. I mean, now I see it, yeah. He had, like, an accent. What?! <laughs> Oh my god! I can't Cut handle this part you right out. now. I can't handle you right now. Uh, so anyway, what did you think of Maltese Falcon? So the Maltese Falcon was the only movie for this episode that I had seen before. Are you, is there another Jordan person out there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, the way we do this, I just look out the window. And there's people walking around. Sorry. All right, so this is the only movie that I had seen before. Uh. And I liked it the first time I saw it, and I still like it the second time I saw it. I think that, you know, I really I like film noir. I like that genre, and I think that this in the like old mystery detective stuff, femme fatales, um, it's enjoyable. I will say that this movie, uh, you know, honestly, like I feel like this movie rests. Completely on Humphrey Bogart and the 100%. fact that he 
embodies Sam Spade. Like, it's just such a perfect, iconic performance that, like, nothing else in the movie really, like, needs to work as long as that works. And it works really well. Um, but the rest of it does work pretty well, too. I will say towards the end, it's a bit of an exposition dump to kind of get to the final resolution. Wait, you haven't seen Citizen Kane? No, this is the first time I saw Citizen Kane. Are you? Wait, when we like seriously? Because yeah. I just want to point out we've we re, we rewatched movies for this show before. Yeah. To refresh ourselves, I did not realize when we were watching Citizen Kane the other night that it was your first time doing. I so. told you like a million times I hadn't seen Citizen Kane before. Really? Yeah. Oh man, I feel like I just forgot though. I don't know. I just assumed you had what we were watching. You, it, your, it was not your first time. I don't no, know. No, it was my first time watching it. All right. Sorry. Yeah. Bogart or whatever. Maltese Falcon though. <laughs> we're not talking about Citizen Kane yet. Uh, no, so the Maltese Falcon, I think that, you know, I will say it's, like, written well, but I also, in my research, like, basically all the best lines from that movie are taken directly out of the novel. Like, very little of what anyone says Dashiell Hammond didn't write. But, um, which I mean, so it's a good novel, obviously. But, um, I don't really know where I'm going with this. If you'd like to cut Me? in and say something. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was trying to let you finish. I saw you struggling there at the end. I was like one of those people that like helps pick you up so you can cross the finish line. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I, uh, I have also read the book. Actually. Oh, have you? Yeah, I read it in high school for film and literature. See, I'm so mad I didn't know about that class. Yeah, well, maybe you should. Then maybe uh, then I would have seen Citizen Kane. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I didn't, why would you have seen Citizen Kane if you? Well, I guess it's not film, film and literature. What are you talking about? I just <laughs> like a film history class. <laughs> See, the problem is when I took film history, my teacher was so sick of having to watch Citizen Kane that he did not show it to us and instead uh, made us watch RKO 281. Yeah, that was stupid. He's an <laughs> idiot. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we actually, we put the teacher, that's the first time I saw The Shining. Oh. In its entirety. Hmm. We shouldn't have done that. No, it's probably not no, appropriate. For... She probably could have been fired. Yeah. We certainly rated R. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think I remember towards the end, she's like, is this rated R? And we're all like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, oh, I think she was like grading other class stuff and wasn't half paid. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That is not, that's besides the point. Uh, I did the read this book. Um, see, I don't think Humphrey Bogart actually does a great Sam Bates. Oh, movie. really? Have I you think read Humphrey the book? Bogart does a good Humphrey Bogart. He's the same in like almost every fucking movie. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> but I mean, like it is, it's fine and all. Um, but Humphrey Bogart is like the coolest yeah, person. I mean, I love Humphrey Bogart, but you said he embodies Sam Spade. And well, I, was I, like, just I don't said, know I don't where know. you get that information. Well, this is the only portrayal of Sam Spade <laughs> I've ever seen. Well, there's a couple other, but uh, he's no, he's, I mean, it's obviously Humphrey Bogart. I, as far as like, I actually remember liking this movie a lot and certainly didn't enjoy it as much this time. Like there's certain things like I love, like obviously I love Bogart when Peter Laurie shows up, I'm a hundred percent it. You know what I mean? Like I love him. Um, and a, a lot of things about this movie work. I just found myself bored in certain areas. I think it's very much like a, an intro to film noir. Mm. Like mm-hmm. if you're, if you want to see if you kind of like this detective thing, it's that kind of movie to watch. Otherwise there are certainly a, Better's out better examples out there though that's true uh but it is it is a fun movie it's pretty tight for the most part but uh and tells the mystery in an interesting way but like again like it kind of lost me here and there i just don't remember i didn't like it as much as i i remembered yeah but also when i first watched it and fell in love with it it was very impressionable you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um so who knows it's for a certain audience i guess but 
Yeah, I do think like the mystery is a little convoluted. And so then I think that's why it gets a little exposition heavy when they're trying to explain everything at the end. Because, yeah, which I think works better in a novel than it's ever going to work. And in possibly a movie. that's why I enjoyed it the first time more is because I had just read the novel. So yeah. maybe like I was putting more together. Whereas like now I've honestly kind of forgotten about it for the most part. But um, I don't know. Yeah, it just kind of just felt a little bit flatter for me this time. But. Yeah. Not a bad movie by any means. No, it's still good. I um, I was telling you, for, I watched this movie when I watched it the first time. I was for my film history class in college. And uh, we had to write, like, little reviews for all these movies. And the review that I wrote for The Maltese Falcon, which we had, like, different aspects of things that we could focus on for each review. And I did, like, a different aspect for each review that I wrote. And so for The Maltese Falcon, I did acting and I did Humphrey Bogart. And it's honestly one of my, like, favorite things I've ever written. So Very cool. So that's my, like, one deep connection. To you didn't say he embodied Sam Spade, did you? No, I think my, the whole thing but is basically just... he played a hell of a detective. It was how cool Humphrey Bogart is. Yeah, Is 100%. basically what the review was. No, 100%. 100%. Uh, so, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, just like with this movie, and I know we're going to talk about uh, How Green Was My Valley in a little bit, but I just feel like... Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'll wait. But it's just, it feels like there's some really great directors here, like some heavy hitters that are like pulling some punches this year. Well, and this was, this I mean, early, we'll talk about John Ford this in a minute, is but early John, John Houston. Houston. Yeah. No, I know. It's early John Houston. But then it's like, also, I mean, still, it's like it's like mid-career Hitchcock. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. for, for that, we're, we just talked about this the other night, but we're going to get to How Green Is My Valley, which came a year after. The Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath, which is like. A cinematic masterpiece compared to you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it's just like it's kind of maybe john houston i maybe i have like what's it called uh like i'm looking back through rose tinted glasses or something yeah it's just it kind of felt like a letdown but given it on the, i know it's his first movie and he actually worked with an icon so uh, john two houston, icons you mean? yeah but what did i say why well, you were going back and forth i don't know if you're talking uh, about john houston or john too Ford. many good johns honestly in this era so yeah anyway. a lot of johns Anyway, I do think it, like, I would recommend it to anybody, like, trying to get into, like, it'd be on that list of, like, classic movies to watch, but. Yeah. Uh, looking at it as, like, a film, through the lens of, like, a film noir, I was just, like, very. And I actually, I don't, basic. I should try to find when I'm doing my stuff, like, the actual, like, release data stuff, because when I was looking up stuff um, about Citizen Kane, it had a list of, like, movies that were directly influenced by it, and The Maltese Falcon is one of them, because The Maltese Falcon also has a lot of shots of low shots where you can see the ceiling, which was like directly inspired. They came out the same year though. I know. So I don't know how that, but I mean, they churned movies out really, really fast in this era. So if Citizen Kane came out in the beginning of the year, they could have still been making this Interesting. movie. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. For sure. Which I said, I have to figure out when they actually came out, but. No, that's interesting. Yeah. But I did notice when we were watching Maltese Falcon because you did see a lot of ceilings and I was like. Yeah. And you, and actually it's funny. Like, Seeing the reflection of the window pane on the, yeah. on the floor. There's all these like little tricks, which Citizen Kane is full of camera tricks. Yes. So, yeah, I, I could see like, you know, maybe he just watched the, we were talking to this because fucking, what's his name? Orson Welles. Yeah. He's 25 goddamn years 25 old. 25 years old. I don't know how young John, he, but John Euston's pretty young at this point too. Probably, yeah. I can see him watching this fucking Citizen Kane movie in the theater being like, 25? <laughs> Yeah. And then he just tries to replicate him in some ways. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. why wouldn't you? Right. <laughs> and maybe not even John, whoever was a cinematographer for Maltese Falcon, is just like, 
we're doing this. <laughs> like, right. Right. But, but like, anyway, what were you going to yeah. say? Uh, I wasn't going to say anything else. Do you want to know what uh, other people thought? Not really. Oh, okay. So moving on. No. <laughs> Uh, the Maltese Falcon has a Rotten Tomato audience score of 91% and a critic score of 100%. And also Rotten Tomatoes now has this thing called a consensus. So do you know Wait, what the what? consensus is? Wait, what? What is this I don't this know. They, like, put, they pull together a little like blurb, I guess, from all the different reviews. That's awesome. Yeah. So the consensus is suspenseful, labyrinthine, and brilliantly cast. The Maltese Falcon is one of the most influential noirs, as well as a showcase for Humphrey Bogart at his finest. So basically That's what well we said. said. That is well said. <laughs> Although I don't think it's one of the finest noirs. But like, I think it's one of the most well-known It's noirs. one most well-known for sure. Um, labyrinthine? Yeah, I believe that means like a labyrinth. That means like multiple people use that fucking word, so they pulled that word. I, d- I don't know if I trust this consensus nonsense. I mean, I don't know how it works. I'm just telling you what it says. Okay. Um, as far as its legacy, the American Film Institute on their original list of the 100 greatest films, it was ranked at number 23. And on the anniversary list, 10 years later, it was number 31. On their list of the 100 thrills, it was ranked at number 26. And on their list of 100 quotes, number 14, the stuff dreams are made of. And on their 10 top 10, it was ranked as the number six mystery film. And it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in 1989. Nice. Early. Um, I did a little quick math. Yeah. John Huston, when he directed this movie, his first directorial effort, mm-hmm. 35. So he was pissed. <laughs> Damn. He was pissed. So, okay. Well, yeah. No one got the deal that Orson Welles got. So mm-hmm. everyone was pissed. Um, Maltese Falcon, its Oscar record had three nominations uh, for picture, supporting actor, and adapted screenplay. And it won zero. <laughs> <laughs> At the box office, it made $1.7 million, which is probably around like like $30 million, $20 million. It's a lot. It's not good. I don't know what I'm saying. $4 billion. <laughs> it is, it's actually higher grossing than Gone with the Wind. It's yeah. crazy. All right. Are you ready to talk about a little film called Citizen Kane? Yeah. All right. It was directed by Orson Welles and produced by RKO Radio Pictures. Synopsis. Following the death of publishing... (laughs) Synopsis. Synopsis. Following the death of publishing tycoon Charles Foster Kane, reporters scramble to uncover the meaning of his final utterance, Rosebud. I cannot believe you just nailed that. That was a tongue twister, It was, wasn't it? I bet you can't do it again. Probably not, so let's not try. (laughs) So Orson Welles not only directed this movie, he also produced it, starred in it, and co-wrote it with Herman Mankiewicz. The story is loosely based on the life of William Randolph Hearst, but takes inspiration from several other era tycoons as well. Is, there, is Mankiewicz the one that um, that uh, David Fincher is doing the Netflix biopic for? I couldn't tell you. Okay. So Wells was the leader of the Mercury Theater, which he had helped found, and they did a radio production of War of the Worlds that really took the world by storm. I'm sure you people know that uh-huh. story. Uh-huh. So Hollywood was real excited about that. And they were like, if he can draw people in with this radio show, he can make a movie, which doesn't really correlate to no. make any kind of sense, but no. <laughs> that's what they decided. 
So they started courting him hard. Uh, but Wells was like, nah. See, this is what happens when I write it myself. Is this is how I, I love it? I'm, I'm so in. I'm actually interested. Wells wanted to focus on theater, and he was not interested in making films. Um, but then RKO studio head George Schaefer came to him with a deal that offered him unheard of privileges. So it was a two film deal that Wells would write, produce, direct, and star in a film in two films. And most controversially, Wells would maintain complete artistic control, was able to cast whoever he wanted, hire whoever he wanted, and had final say on all cuts. <laughs> like directors don't and get that, that kind of deal now. That was the last time that happened. Yes, it was. Yeah. People were so mad about it. Yeah. He didn't even get to do his second movie like that, honestly. So like Yeah. They were like, no, yeah, never again. But like, can you, a 25-year-old who's never made a movie, and George Schaefer's like, yeah, I mean, you get final cut. I mean, I will say, like, if any of his, like the real Orson Welles is anything like, I mean, just the 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 guy who radiated off the screen, mm-hmm. like, I could see, yes, you just throwing money at him and being like, do something because. He is fucking immensely talented. Yeah, so I guess the Mercury Theater had a reputation of like doing some very like avant-garde experimental stagings, and so they wanted some. They wanted to bring that energy and that experimentalist. That's not a word to the screen. Sure. Uh, and he did. This is my favorite little fact that I looked up. So the makeup for the film was done by Maurice Siderman, who was a junior member of the RKO makeup department. With the way the studio system worked, only the head of the department received uh, screen credit in the film. And the head of the department at the time refused to have Siderman credited alongside him. So Wells chose not to credit makeup at all on screen. Instead, he took out an ad in the LA newspaper thanking everyone who got screen credit for the film and everyone who didn't. And it said, quote, and particularly to Maurice Siderman, the best makeup man in the world. After Citizen Kane was released, Wells was invited to a White House dinner where Frances Perkins, the Secretary of Labor, was among guests. Wells told her about the Russian immigrant who did the makeup for his film but could not join the union. Cederman said the head of the union received a call from the Labor Department the next day, and in November 1941, he was a full union member. That's rad, dude. Isn't that nice? Because I guess he had been, like, he was, like, the best person on that lot, and he'd been doing a lot of uncredited work on, like, a ton of, like, Hunchback of Notre Dame and, like, a bunch of, like, Movies that had a lot of prosthetics and stuff Wait, like that. Wait, it's she said that because I think John Tolan, or is it Greg Tolan? I can't, I can't, I never remember the, the cinematographer's name. Greg Toland. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he shot, no, Hunchback in Notre Dame. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, but, but he, like, you always just went uncredited because he wasn't the head of the department because he wasn't, mm-hmm. he couldn't get in the union. Interesting. Isn't that nice? Maybe it was Robert Weiss edited. Sorry, I'm going off on my credits here. All right, well, here's my last little fact about Citizen Kane. That's a really good story. I know. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, William Randolph Hearst was very upset about this film, and he did everything within his considerable power to stop it. Through other studio heads, Hearst offered Schaefer over $800,000 to destroy all prints of the film. He threatened to expose an affair Wells was having with Dolores Del Rio, an actress who was in the midst of getting a divorce, and threatened to sue Wells for libel although it's unlikely he ever would have considering the testimony he would need to give to prove his case. Right. Uh, When all attempts to stop the film from coming out fell apart, Hearst resorted to banning any mention of the film in any of his newspapers and convinced many theaters not to screen the film at all. 
While the film was a relative box office success, its lackluster performance is somewhat to be blamed on Hearst's actions. Amen, yeah. And basically, like, I was trying to see if there was any correlation between it not winning Best Picture and Hearst, but I don't, I don't think that really played a part of it. From what I can tell, so the way the with the studio system worked, so the largest voting block within the Academy is always actors, and they get to vote on, like, the acting awards and Best Picture. Well, everyone gets to vote on Best Picture. And um, basically, back then, actors were kind of forced to vote with, their studio and so the studios that had the most extras and actors and that sort of thing tended to be the movies that won best picture a lot and basically they just said that there was a lot more people who were voting in block for that's really shitty actually i'm very upset to hear this. Fox. yeah this is, this is why we do the show yeah that's interesting yeah um damn oh i want to see did you find anything any facts about like the popularity of this movie. Are we are we gonna get to that at the end? Like the the the, the quote unquote masterpiece that is of how it was received at the box office. Just in, no 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 in general. I mean, generally, I think that critics really liked it for the mm-hmm. most part. There were some critics that didn't like it, and um, but I think the regular audiences it doesn't seem like they really connected okay. to it that much. But I mean, like when was because I read something a while back that said it actually wasn't until the nineteen eighties that Citizen Kane came back in and started playing like in repertory theaters that critics actually went to f- mm. calling it the greatest film of all time. So what I found is, so it got a re-release in like 1956, I think it got re-released mm. and then it started, it was re-released or released for the first time in Europe and French critics started praising it a bunch. And so then it like, when it came back over here, people started paying more attention to it again. Okay. That's what I read. Okay. Because by the time in 19, the first sight and sound list in 1952, it just missed the cut of being on the list. And then by 1962, it was number one. So I oh, think that, shit. yeah, and it was, okay. and it stayed number one until 2012. So he, really? Like yeah. When so I took think it? that hmm? when Vertigo took it. Yeah. Or wait. Yeah. Is it Vertigo? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think critics have liked it for a while. And I know when they, it's like when I was reading all the stuff, when they had the press screenings and stuff, everybody really liked it. Even in 1941, the press was like very excited about it. Sure. I mean, look at them represented in it <laughs> in a big bad way, though, for real, for yeah. real, not in a bad way either. Like, you know, no, you know, it's what I was thinking, you know, cause I knew again, I hadn't seen Citizen Kane before, but I, I knew what it was about. I knew the general plot and that sort of thing. But, um, do you and know I, what Rosebud was? I did. That's unfortunate. Yeah. And uh, and I knew that William Randolph Hearst, you know, obviously was unhappy about it. But watching it, I was like, I don't really think it's like that negative of a portrayal. Like, it's not him, but even if it's supposed to be him, I don't think it's I the most negative portrayal of him. I strongly disagree with that. Really? I mean, yeah, it is not an attack movie, like, thank God. No. Nor, th- nor do I think it ever should be. But it is about a sad Sad well, yeah, individual. he's sad, I guess. But that's but that. How offensive would that be if that's you know they're doing that about you and you you find out like what the tone of it is or like what it's yeah. really about? Like, no, you don't want people to see that side of you. You spend your whole fucking life making it not look like that. You know what I mean? But the truth, at the end of the day, money can't. Like, I don't want to say money can't buy you happiness, but like, I mean, at the end, of the day, it can't. Yeah. Like the like what he wanted. He couldn't. 
he couldn't really achieve. And so he would forever be sad and lonely. But is that true of William Randolph Hearst? I have no idea. Yeah. But when the press starts talking about that, yeah. that's where it leads, you know? like I read a thing that, like, basically for the rest of Hearst's life, like, there was no mention of him that didn't also mention this movie. Wow. And I guess when his son died, it said, like, Citizen Kane, like, the headline was Citizen Kane's son dies. Jesus. Yeah. Which I'm like, that's kind of rough, I guess. The thing is, <laughs> it's honestly, it's one of those things, like, I don't know why this example just popped in my head, but, like, that weird-ass, like, experimental movie that shot inside Disney World, like, mm. low-key. Yeah. And, like, got released and everything had no problems because Disney wasn't going to go after it and, and give, it, give more it more attention. Right. I think That's what Hearst fucked up here. Yeah. Hearst fucked up. Well, to a certain extent, although he also succeeded in getting it banned from many places. Well, sure. <laughs> he but, had a lot of power. But I mean, like, even he was before Disney I, of nineteen, even before I seen Citizen Kane in high school, like I knew that story. To yeah. It's like from the get go, he made that the word on the street. You know what I mean? Like, Which then makes you think that it is pretty accurate because you're like, if it's not accurate to your life, you wouldn't be this upset about it. Right. He really, Even though I don't think he ever saw he it. He really played that wrong. Oh, he definitely saw it. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, what, what is it, The Great Dictator? You said that fact, like, Hitler yeah. is the only movie Hitler wrote down twice. Yeah. He watched twice. Dude, you're telling me, <laughs> you're telling me William Randolph Hearst didn't watch Citizen Kane? Dude, bullshit. They had, he might have might been the most secret screening that's ever <laughs> he existed. He was wearing a hat but, and a fake little yeah. mustache and sunglasses and was sitting in the back of the theater. Like, one ticket to do this one, please. Well, I guess, what's this? Oh. I guess I'll check that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2012, they actually had a screening of Citizen Kane at the Hearst Mansion in San Simeon, which was the first time. That's it was like epic, dude. List, lifted the ban of Citizen Kane on the Hearst family. Again. I mean, obviously, that movie definitely he was real dead, but Hearst like, mansion before. <laughs> I just want to repeat that again. There's no way that movie that was the first time it was played at Hearst Mansion. All right, Hearst Castle. What is it? Hearst, Hearst Estate. Hearst State. Well, he has he has he had multiple castles. Oh, okay. he didn't just have the one. So he didn't have the one. No, he had multiple. Where did they shoot at? For was that all just like paintings and shit? Yeah, it was it was sound stages. Sanity. Okay. And the Zanity, we haven't yeah, talked about this movie at all, by the way. I know. It was like uh, models. Yeah, okay. Miniatures. Um, so, I mean, I'll say, again, this is the first time I saw it. And I think, you know, it's one of those things like this movie you hear, basically you only ever hear it in the context of it's, if it's not the greatest film of all time, it's one of the greatest films of all time. And so that's like a huge bar going into a movie to have that live up to. And I'll say what I said to you last night after we watched it. It is astounding how good that movie is. It's astounding even today in 2019. And I think also the point of the kind of the reason of why we do this podcast the way we do it too, like watching it against other movies that came out in 1941. Yeah. It's insane. Like, I right. feel like it probably didn't connect with audiences because it was so far ahead of its time that they like didn't even know what to do with it. I mean, I don't even, you know, ahead of its time is like, I feel like I know what you're saying, but but I think it's just like the people who made films later had seen Citizen Kane. That's true. So you know what I mean. I don't know if it's like ahead of its time as much as like it created it. Cre yeah, the it, time it inspired a whole new influence of for for directing. But well, and one of the things I read too is that like Citizen like Citizen Kane, Orson Welles and Greg Toland like didn't 
create any of the shots. Like they didn't create anything new in that movie that hadn't been done before. It was just that they used it all so well and used it all together at the same time for the first time Wow. that it like created a completely different kind of movie. Interesting. But I'll say like, and I don't, I mean, you can speak more to the camera stuff because I don't really know what that, but like the pacing of this movie, the structure of this movie <laughs> the structure is so is the most impressive part. different than anything. I mean, like, I mean, most movies that were coming out at this time were, you know, based on plays and books and whatever, and they just felt like a book and felt like a play. And, like, scenes are, like, 20 minutes long in one location, and that's it. And then this is, like, the fastest-paced thing. Like, watching it, I kept thinking, like, this movie looks like it came out in, like, the late 60s during sure. that, like, revolution of filmmaking. And the fact that it came out in 1941 right. is insane. And it's I mean, insane again, that a 25-year-old yeah, that's the worst part about had it. no <laughs> experience making movies. He literally was like looking up like terms so that he could use them correctly as he was doing it. Also, he like watched Stagecoach 40 times in preparation for making this, which I think is kind of cute. And, and lost to John Ford. And then so. lost to John Ford. <laughs> but that's where he got the whole, in Stagecoaches, where they shoot up on the heroes and down on the weaker characters. And he got that from Stagecoach. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he literally didn't even know how to like convey what he wanted to Greg Toland. Yeah. In like the terms that a director would normally have because he had, had no sure. experience making And movies. I imagine Greg Toland's thinking like, oh my God, I'm fucked. Greg <laughs> Toland went to Orson Welles and asked to make a movie with him because he wanted to make a movie with someone who had no experience making movies. And he had seen one of the plays at Mercury Theater. And so he was like, he wanted to do something experimental and he thought this was the guy to do it. And again, I think we talked about last night, which was pointed out to me by a film professor too, but it was just like the fact that they share a title card at the end of the movie together is Mm -hmm. like the coolest thing. Yeah. And Orson Welles like insisted on that because he said that it wouldn't have been anything without Greg Tolan. Yeah. Which is true. So, so, so true. So true. Um, but yeah, like you said, the worst part is that he was 25 years old. Like that, (laughs) I mean, as a filmmaker, Sure, we've had young people make good films before. Um, it's a rarity in the 20s, but like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, like Steven Soderbergh winning Can with uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape at 28 was like revolutionary. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a rarity that someone makes a really good film in their 20s. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact that, that's not even, dude, the fact that he plays a character, like he's only playing his age, his actual age for like what? a quarter to a third of the movie. Yeah, I don't even know if the that much. The rest of the time, he's, yeah, he's playing a much older version of this character, and it's so nuanced, and it's so fucking good, that that's what pisses me off about him being 25. <laughs> it's not that he accidentally made, like, a masterpiece. Right. It's that he acted his ass off to the point where, like, I don't know how he's not getting compared to, like, Marlon Brando. Right. You know what I mean? Like, things like this, where, like, for him to write, like, develop, write this character and become him is just fucking amazing to watch. You mentioned the makeup guy who killed it. The makeup is so good. In this it's movie. so good. The age makeup. I've, I don't even think it puts Eddie Murphy to shame. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that a high bar? I don't know. <laughs> no, but I think what you just said with the structure, I think that is the, it literally tells you this whole guy's life in the first five minutes of this movie. Yeah. And then goes back and dives in and jumps around and does this cool narrative stuff. Yeah, the fact stuff. that it like, because with each different narrator, and the fact that it has like four or five different narrators, yeah. basically, 
and then it jumps back and forth. So you see him from like 25 to 80 once. And then you see him from like 30 to 50. And then you see him from, and like things overlap. It's just, it's so. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense how good this He literally is. sold his soul, or we'll call it his career, to the devil. <laughs> well, but like kind of, right? Because I mean, one, you're probably never going to match the success of yeah. Citizen Kane artistically but he literally never he never even came close to matching this uh, and what he did i don't know about close I feel well like, i've heard the magnificent ambersons is good i mean f is for fake is supposed to be a masterpiece uh what's the one i'm missing though the third man i don't know is that what it is doesn't matter but like i mean these are all considered like great in their own right it's sure just, uh well, i read the robert weiss who edited the film and who went on to be a director he directed yeah, west side sure. story but um he had a quote where he was saying basically like orson wells did not prepare for this film really because he didn't know how to prepare to make a film but then he like got it in his head that i'm paraphrasing obviously what robert weiss said but like sure. he got it in his head that he didn't need to prepare for a film and robert rice was like that it was his he's like he never utilized his talent to the full extent of what he could that, well, that's fucking... See, I need to know, like, how this went, though. Like, um, like how this went on set. People had to be complaining. There's no way everyone was, like, living in the magic well, except that this. most of the actors... Touch of evil is what I was trying to think of. Sorry. Oh, okay. Most yeah. of the actors were Mercury Theater people. Oh, that's true. So, so I guess you're right. But the crew, and... someone had to be pissed, okay? Someone was like, this 25-year-old has no idea what a camera is and how to... Like, Which I guess, like, Greg Tolan said, like, you know, or, or he would come to him and say what he wanted. And it was, like, so crazy. And so then Greg Tolan would just have to, like, figure out how to do it because no one had ever, like, would had ever asked right. him to do that before. Do you want to know how they did the shot through the sign that you like? Yeah, actually. It was a collapsible sign that they could pull apart as the camera, like, went through it. That's, see, that's what I, I actually, I did figure that out. Did though. you? Yeah, and then the way they do it later, it's, like, in reverse, but it's definitely not in reverse. It's oh, just they just, like, played forward. it. You play played it in reverse. Yeah. Then I already did figure that out. But, like, I'm not going to lie. When I first saw it, I was just like, what? Like, it <laughs> caught me off guard. So then I had to go back and think about it. Mm-hmm. But that's where I deconstructed it. But I would say, like, the... the... Dude, there's still shots in fucking 2001 Space Odyssey. I don't understand. And people try to explain it to me and I'm just like, okay, but that also sounds impossible. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Uh, I was like the art direction of this film. I mean, it was all for the most part filmed on sound stages, but it never felt like a soundstage the way so many other movies of this era feel. It felt and a lot, maybe it's because you see the ceilings or whatever, but it felt so like lived in and real yeah. And like in half, like it just, it didn't feel like a soundstage. I, I do want to say though, this movie having the cloud it has, we also definitely saw a really good version of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the movies we see from these eras, they're not preserved the best. That's true. So like sometimes you got to take, but, but no, but like, I totally agree with what you're saying. I just wanted to point that out too. Like, cause I think you're still absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear something crazy. So when they're driving out to the picnic at the end, like him and mm-hmm. his wife, and there's like these big birds flying in the distance. Yeah. It was a rear projection that they used from a horror film. So those are actually pterodactyls. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. And yeah, I noticed that part. I was I thought that was bizarre, and I don't know why it needed to be there, but apparently he thought it needed to be there. I guess. <sighs> it's just it's honestly 
it's just astounding to me that this film was made. And I know, I mean, like, I feel like so dumb that it'll make my hot take in 2019 is that Citizen Kane is like a really groundbreaking, amazing movie, but it's the only conclusion I can come to. So, well, you know, I think sometimes when you just hear it, like it doesn't necessarily gain somebody's garner somebody's interest in it. You know, you hear it in a book, mm-hmm. you hear it by hearsay or whatever else, like it doesn't necessarily garner somebody's interest, but maybe, maybe, Maybe you will get someone excited to actually finally go check it out. Finally scratch that one off the list. Right. Because, I mean, like, I did I did always want to see it because it's supposed to be really good. But I always felt like it was going to be like a home. You know, I'm like, oh, I have to watch Citizen Kane because it's such a exactly, good movie. Exactly. But, like, it is a thoroughly enjoyable film from start to finish. And, I mean, like, it's not like it's a dark movie for sure. It's sad. But it's so well done. All right. You want to hear what other people think of Citizen Kane? Well, let me guess. It's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, yeah. So, as, well, it has an audience score of 90%. Okay. A critic score of 100%. On the consensus is, Orson Welles' epic tale of a publishing tycoon's rise and fall is entertaining, poignant, and inventive in its storytelling, earning its reputation as a landmark achievement in film. It's fair. All right. It's legacy. Let me clear my throat here and get all this out. On the American Film Institute's original list of the 100 greatest films of all time, it was ranked at number one. Wow. And 10 years later on the anniversary list, it was ranked at number one. On their list of the 100 greatest lines, Rosebud came in at number 17. Uh, Like I said before, the British Film Institute's sight and sound critics list in 1962 and for every or is ranked number one for every decade from 1962 to 2012 on the critics list and on the director's list it was ranked at number one in 1992 and 2002 and tied for number two in 2012 and it was one of the first 25 films that created the national film registry holy shit wow at the oscars it was nominated in nine categories and won one what it went for original screenplay Oh, cool. So Orson and Herman got Oscars that somehow both got sold at auction, which I didn't think you could do, but... Probably before. I guess that's probably before. The the rule to do that is new. But it was not that long ago, I didn't think, that they sold. I don't know. So I don't know. Maybe it's because... Maybe they had originally sold before that rule, so then they don't have to follow it. I don't know. Um, And the box office, it made $1.6 million, which includes... The 1991 re-release. Nice. Which equates to $86 billion today. I don't think that's correct, but you've closed your calculator, so there's no way to know. <laughs> All right. Um, we're actually not done talking. We still have to talk about the winner. Ugh. I thought we did already. Right. How Green Was My Valley, directed by John Ford, produced by 20th Century Fox. Synopsis. At the turn of the century in a Welsh mining village, the Morgans, he stern, she gentle, raise coal mining sons and hope their youngest will find a better life. Blah, they also bl- raise a daughter, but blah, who cares blah, about blah. her? We already mentioned less, you know, it's not that great a John Ford movie, especially coming after Grapes of Wrath. We've seen a lot better John Ford out there. Nothing happens, but you don't need to see it. It's honestly not very good at all. I don't know how it won the Oscar. Compares nothing to Citizen Kane or even some of the other movies we've previously mentioned. Uh, real snooze fest. Don't even worry about checking it out. You've not you've not heard it referenced in any film history class other than maybe it's part of John Ford's repertoire. Uh, you're good. All right. 
So that's it for season three. Uh, or is it actually season two? Yes. <laughs> I tried. I tried, Devin. Well, I'm going to tell you some fun facts about how green was my valley. Oh, uh, we weren't even past. No. <laughs> Bam. I went, I went too early. I went okay. too early. Uh, the film is based on the 1939 novel of the same name by Richard Llewellyn and was produced by Daryl Zanuck, scripted by Philip Dunn. John Ford became the second director to win three Academy Awards for Best Director, having previously won for The Informer in 1935 and The Grapes of Wrath just the year before. So he was the first director to win back-to-back. Might be the only. Has anyone else done that? Don't think so. Martin Scorsese. Has one goddamn Oscar. (laughs) Um, Eleven years later, he would win his fourth for The Quiet Man in 1952, um, a record unmatched by any other director. Historians have called the way the wind plays with O'Hara's veil when she leaves the church after her wedding a stroke of luck for John Ford. <laughs> Far from it. He had instructed the crew to set up a wind machine to the fan veil in a perfect circle behind her head and then blow straight up into the air. I want to point out, Devin loved this shot. Really. It was beautiful. It was. Yeah. I love that it, like, people are like, oh, what well, good luck that there was wind. John Ford's like, no, it's called a fan. Because yeah. that's what I want it to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am the director. Yeah. I directed that wind. That's all I got to say about how green is my valley. I, w- I want to throw a few things out there. there. There's actually some pretty good performances in here. And yes. uh, it is one of those stories that's universal to some degree. And there are some great shots in it. Well, it's still familial. Like, sure. It's fine. I will say um, Donald Crisp, who plays the father in this movie, yeah. won the Best Supporting Actor oh, good. Oscar. I mean, he which was he was very he good. He was honestly very good in it. Yes. I just say, like, I feel I feel bad. I'm trying to walk it back a little bit. It's not that bad of a movie. It's just like, again, we just talked about Citizen Kane, which it pales in comparison to. Yes. Doesn't even doesn't even need to be deserved to be mentioned in the same breath. Like, not to be dramatic about it, no. but the only reason it would be said in the same breath is because of these, this Oscar race. Exactly. That's just it. I feel like like what I said at the in the intro, like this movie is mostly remembered for the movie that beat Citizen Kane. I would, and I mean, and it's one of the four movies that John Ford won Best Director for. But I certainly wouldn't even consider this one of John Ford's best movies by far. And it's, right. I mean, it's fine. It's so long, and it's based on a book, and I, it feels so much like a book, like. The story is kind of just like little vignettes that sometimes there's a through line. Sometimes there's not. They're just like chapters, you know? Right. Which I think works well in a novel. Um, And I think in 1941 worked well in a film. It's just that that doesn't really hold up to our, our preferences and our expectations in 2019. Also taking it back to another, another director from this year, Hitchcock don't work with children. Because this little boy actor who's, like, the lead of the movie, not good. I liked him. He was not a good actor. I liked him. Okay, do you remember when he was learning to walk again? Because that was, do you remember him grabbing his little stick? Yeah, but he was, like, he had a good look about him. It was, he was fine. No, he was not. Wait, why did you say Hitchcock? What did Hitchcock work with kids? He said never work with kids or animals. Oh, sorry. I thought you were trying to compare it to Suspicion. Oh, no, just, that's the thing Hitchcock's in. Gotcha. And he, he made a movie work. called The Birds. That's true. Well, he didn't have to work with birds. He just to throw them at Tippy Hedren. <laughs> so. <laughs> See that frightened lady over there? Just whip them at her. Just throw birds at her head. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> she loves it. 
Don't listen to the screams. They're not real. She's, she's acting. acting. She's, that's what she's paid for, ladies She also and loves me. Don't let anyone tell you differently. <laughs> Who doesn't, though, right? Am I right? Am I right? It's a really good Alfred Hitchcock impression. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's me, Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> hey, forget about it. <laughs> Uh, anyway this is not fun for our listeners no uh so yeah no how green was my valley no like i said to you it's a lot of similar themes to the grapes of wrath as far as family and poverty and working the land and you know making ends meet and in bad circumstances and the grapes of wrath is a masterpiece. And this just feels like, like they were like, Hey, you did a good job with grapes of wrath. Make this very similar movie. Yeah. Question. They had color film at this time, right? Yeah. I want to point out that none of the movies not made for best picture are in color. That's true. Do you know why this one wasn't in color? No, because they, they wanted to film it in Wales, but there was a little war going on over there, so they couldn't do it. So they had to film in California. And the wild, the colors uh, of the wildflowers did not match the wildflowers in Wales. So, fine. Whatever. Don't care. Uh, really bothers me when you put the col- a color in the title of a movie, and we can't see the fucking color. <laughs> like, I know it has, like, little reference to, like, I, I understand that. It's a metaphor, I, It's more though, a metaphor. Kyle. Yeah. I get it. I get it. But I'm saying, like... The Yellow Brick Road in, in Wizard of Oz. Like, you don't fucking say Yellow Brick Road and I don't see any fucking yellow. Do you know what I'm saying? Fair. Like, let me see this nature. Yeah. But, I mean, I feel like their valley probably wasn't very green as they were coal miners. Which is interesting. Again, And things were probably very concept. black and dirty. Right. I honestly don't think this movie would have looked as good if it was in color. To be honest, I really liked Yeah. kind of the... The very high contrast uh, look for the black and white. Maybe that's why it won for best cinematography. Did it win for best cinematography? Black and white, yeah. Did it really? Yeah. We'll see. There you go. You heard it here first, folks. I mean, should it have? (laughs) Probably not. Did Greg Tolan deserve that Oscar? Yes. I mean, again, DPs didn't see. Or they just thought it was too far out there. Or they got mad. Again. I feel like anger played a lot in the reception of Citizen Kane. You think like people were jealous that they yes. didn't make it? I think no, I think they were jealous that like they probably heard about this kid. They're like, "Well, that's going to be a fucking train wreck." Yeah. And then it comes out good, and then they're pissed because they did all the they took all these risks uh in the art of cinematography and it's just like, mm, well, you know, these guys the Yeah. Was it nominated? Yes, it was nominated. Okay, that's at least good. It didn't win. It's, it's unfair. It's it's unfair. It's not, I don't know. I just feel like, obviously, during the studio system, I feel like there's a lot more um, infighting and kind of like, I don't know. It's not a perfect world when it comes to voting on things. No. I mean, and I still it's still not perfect now. I think that there's still issues in the way that people vote for the Oscars. So. Well, sure. But I mean, even back then, like, I just think there was... Everything was more standard. They weren't pushing a lot of boundaries. No, so that's, again, literally what feels they, so good about this movie. In the in the studio system, it was definitely the the focus was on quantity over quality because they just wanted to crank out as many films right. as possible. Right. They did not. They did not appreciate every part of it being an art form yet. No, but it's movies like Citizen Kane that right. got people to start right. caring about it. I mean, like, think about, the, like, if you think, so, like, I said it looks like a movie in, like, the 60s. 
And all those people that are making movies in the 60s were like kids or teenagers in the 40s watching Citizen Kane who were probably like, yeah. that's what I'm going to do. Right. Or watching Citizen Kane in college. Yeah. Like, truthfully, when they're learning how to do stuff. like You know what I mean? Like, honestly, that that movie is would be such an inspiration, especially in, like, the 60s and 70s. I feel like it's still an now, inspiration. But. Like, I feel like there's still things that people can learn from that movie about making movies. Absolutely. Apparently, don't know anything about making movies. Well, yeah, I think that's kind of a fluke. But it, remi- <laughs> it does remind me of, like, the French New Wave stuff where, like, they literally just watched a lot of movies and didn't know how to do it. And so yeah. they're like, we're just going to make a movie. Yeah, we got it. And then they made masterpieces too. Yeah, yeah, they're not all masterpieces. Well, no. <laughs> but I know what you're Fair. saying. No, I absolutely know what you're saying. I mean, like, cinema is the best teacher. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Classes can only get you so far. If you don't fucking do your homework, which in film school is watching movies, yeah. you're not going to grow. I was just actually, I was just listening to a podcast and Eli, Eli Roth was talking like he was in college between like 90 and 94, and everybody's making like, Schindler's List for their college projects. But then he'd go like hang out in their dorm rooms and they'd have like Animal House and like <laughs> whatever on their shelf. Yeah. And it's just like, why are you making this movie you don't even want to watch? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Make the movie you care about, not just something because you think people want it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Sorry. That was random, but like still very like true. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. You want to hear what other people thought about How Green Is My Valley? Yeah. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 81% and a critic score of 90%. The critics' consensus is, though it perhaps strays into overly maudlin territory, this working-class drama is saved thinking. by a solid cast and director John Ford's unmistakable style. Yeah, if this movie was made by anyone besides John Ford, I definitely don't think that it would have I mean, been yeah. nominated. Yeah, but yeah, that was a perfect way to put it, overly maudlin. I, uh, I had yeah. thought of that. Your face tells me you might not know what modeling means. Uh, have you heard of it before? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. It. <laughs> it uh, I was just thought I was. I thought I was the only one in the room that knew. Uh, yeah, I know exactly what it means. Good. I'm yeah. glad we're both on the same page. And I agree with the critics. Good. Overly modeling. Modeling. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. Um, as far as its legacy, it was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry in 1991 or 1990. I'm sorry. At the Oscars, it had 10 nominations and five wins. It won for picture, director, supporting actor, black and white cinematography, and black and white art direction. It's just a ton of a ton of statues that stole from Citizen Kane. And uh, that's it. So, Kyle, it's the end of our podcast. It's time to ask, did the Academy get it right this year? Devin, they sure didn't. I agree. What should have won? On the count of three, ready? <laughs> yes. Are we both going to do it? Do what? Okay. Oh, no. What happened? My nail chipped. Oh, no. What should have won? Citizen Kane. I was going to say Sergeant York. I know you were. Could you make this dumb joke like every time we record an episode? <laughs> I find it funny. <laughs> Obviously, Citizen Kane should have won. It's just so long in between episodes, you forget you make it. Trust me, I fall, I suffer from the same thing. <laughs> uh... Citizen Kane is not only the best movie in 1941, it's one of the best movies of all time. End of podcast. But Devin also thinks Almost Famous is one of the best movies of all time. So. It is. <laughs> Proved, prove him wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that's uh, it. That's it. Like, that was a, kind of an anticlimactic way to end this season. But um, What are you looking forward to in season three? Honestly, not a lot. It's not a great <laughs> wow. Wow, guys. Uh, I can't even think of what we're watching next season. Oh, I think we watch Lawrence of Arabia next season. Cool. I've not seen that David before. Lane masterpiece, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this was our second season. We hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, we're going to take a little break while we <laughs> watch the movies for next season. All you do is take a break. That's true. Guys, there's a lot of movies to watch. When did our last season, when did season one end? What month? I couldn't tell you. Oh, okay. I can look it up, but I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, like, are we like on schedule for like one, no. one year a year? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're doing one a year, but I don't think we're on the same schedule at all. What do you mean? I think we started this season way later than we did last. But no, but we, so far we got one a year. We got one yeah. in 17, one in eight, or one in 18, one in 19. Yeah. All right, we'll see you in 20, baby. We'll see you in 2020. Yeah. Got a lot to look forward to. And also remember to subscribe to the podcast oh, to yeah. make sure you know when we come back. And we also might have some little fun bonus episodes in between the seasons like we did last year. So just make sure you're subscribed, rate and review us, all that fun stuff. Follow us on Instagram. Um, I think we still have a Facebook page, so check that out. Do we really? Yeah, I haven't updated it all season, oh. so do we have do, that. do we have uh, ratings on iTunes podcast? Yeah, yeah, cool. So keep doing that. Keep sending us your five star ratings. Five star reviewing us, telling all your friends and family about us, <laughs> and uh, I don't know anything else to say. Watch movies. That's good. actually that's a really good thing to end on. I want to do it. Watch movies. Genius is a word that must be used very sparingly, especially in this world of films. Uh, those who claim it, who don't have it, and uh, others who do have it, uh, that uh, keep the fact concealed for fear of being called difficult, which uh, usually translates as unemployable. So at one time or another, Orson Welles has been considered both difficult and unemployable. I know only too damn well. Uh, but from the very first, from the time of his very first picture, the unforgettable Citizen Kane, Wells' mastery of the medium was evident. Unfortunately, only once, in Kane, was he free to exercise his talents without restraint? Subsequent productions were cut by other hands or like his Macbeth made on impossibly low budgets. Yet in every picture he ever made, his brilliance shone through. Thirty years ago, Orson Welles received from the Academy what he liked to call half an Oscar for the script of Citizen Kane, which he co-authored with Herman J. Mankiewicz. Tonight, the Academy is honored to give him an Oscar all his own. <laughs> Earned through his glowing performances, through the inspiration of his direction, 
and because he is truly that most difficult, unforgivable, and invaluable of God's creations, a man of genius. Orson wanted to be here tonight, but he's filming abroad, and so he accepts, in the medium he loves best, film. <laughs> From Europe, Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, with this great honor, may I say that it's a lot more fun to look forward. Looking backward over some 30 years in the movies is something that I like to do as seldom as possible, but I can't forget that I didn't spend those years alone. Every filmmaker knows how much was done for him and by how many. If I could call just half of all those who deserve it to stand beside me now in front of this camera just to get them in one shot, we'd need Cinerama. It'd be quite a crowd scene. As for the public, I hope that they will understand why this is the more precious just because it does not come to me from them, much less from the critics, but from movie people themselves, the ones who love movies most. We need the public. The public doesn't need us. That's the truth of it. We don't really fill a pressing popular need. We try to create it. And if we didn't love movies as much as we do, if we weren't a little crazy on the subject, there wouldn't be any movies at all. I treasure this award as an expression of this happy lunacy. And may I accept it, please, not so much for what I may have done as for what I hope to do. God willing, I'm going to make some movies that deserve it. Meanwhile, this encouragement is very welcome. With all my heart, I thank you for it. Happy lunacy. That's really telling it like it is. On my way back to Ireland, I'll stop in Spain and give him this.